Um, so with all that being said, um, this morning, like I mentioned, we're going to be really blessed uh, by, by Ben, who's coming to share. Um, many of you are aware that about two years ago, start of 2021, I nosedived into a season of burnout, which, um, which lasted, I was like up and down, up and down, up and down for about a good two years, and now I'm like sort of out of it, um, not fully recovered though. Um, but at the very start of it, um, someone got me in contact with Ben, and Ben's a um, leadership coach who lives up in the Sunshine Coast, and um, he um, helps people to process things like this, to work it through, to understand what's going on, and Ben was just a massive blessing to me, to give me a grid for just what was going on in my body, in my mind. He understood it. He'd helped other people through it, and so he was able to give me a lot of really helpful guidance and support at that, at that time to help me just find my feet in how to actually recover and how to make it out of that season. And so um, as part of our Practical Christian series that we've been doing here at, at Grace House over the last year and a half, where we invite people in to come and speak on just practical things to do with the Christian life, we, uh, we thought it'd be really good to tackle the topic of rest, how we as Christians can um, go about resting in a way that is conducive with fruitfulness in the kingdom, because um, it's not just all about busy, be, being busy and doing things and doing things. Um, rest is a really important part of our rhythms as Christians, and it's necessary for us to flourish as believers. And so we wanted to have rest be a part of the series. And um, since I was so phenomenally blessed by um, Ben's help in my life in this area, I thought he'd be the perfect guy to invite in to come and share on that. So I'll hand the mic over to him. You guys give him a round of applause as he comes up. And um, over to you, brother. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. You've got to chop some legs off this table. I'm a small dude. Um, well, thank you so much for having me. Tianus has pumped me up, and let me uh, humble myself a little bit in front of you, hey? So I want to start by telling you about um, Boxing Day 2012. I sat on a couch with my then-girlfriend, and over the course of an hour, and through tears... It took me 16 full minutes to spit out. I think I'm sick. And I didn't know it then, but I was already in the midst of burnout at the age of 24. And over the next three months, my whole life fell apart. Our eight and a half year relationship ended. We were part of an incarnational missional community. And we decided she would stay and I would go. I was diagnosed with depression. I spent the next three months in the dark, on the couch. I was fully a movie trope, like the dude in his underwear drinking milk out of the carton. That was me. And I'm lactose intolerant. It was a bad time. <laughs> I was three years into a role as a missions and youth pastor. And I was starting to be recognized beyond the church. Like, oh, this is a young guy who can talk and he can speak and he can lead. And I was getting invited to come and join things and train things. And... But I remember walking into the office and I sat down at my desk and I set up my computer and I just fell apart. I couldn't do it. Three months, unpaid leave. I can't be here, guys. I prided myself on being pretty sharp, but it was like someone had taken my brain out and just swapped it with cotton wool. I couldn't think. I had lots of friends, lots of people who knew me, lots of people I thought were friends. When I got sick, I had a handful of people who were willing to stick around and be in my life. Maybe you've experienced that. My family were overseas, so I was home alone. And then at basketball, I'm a basketball tragic, it's the wrong sport for a five foot six Malaysian to love, but 
The heart loves what it loves. And at basketball, I was undercut, had my legs taken out from underneath me. I tore every ligament in my left ankle, and I didn't walk for six months. And in this time, I knew God was there. I knew I could see him at work. I could see him at work in other people's lives, but it was like there was this glass wall between God and I. And he's here, and I'm here. I can see him, but I can't hear him. And I can't speak to him. And what I didn't realize was this glass wall was entirely of my own making. I was living in such a way that it was disconnecting me from a God who desperately wanted to connect with me. And after three months of basically doing nothing, I was lying in the backyard one day. That was my win. During that season of depression, my win was be outside and lie down on the grass. So I'm lying on the grass, and then the Spirit drops these words into my heart. Ben, everything you hang your hat on for identity is gone. And now it's just you and me. So who are you? Who are you? Jesus has taught me some deep truths about who I am since, but I want to start today. Tina has told you how good I am. Let me start today in a spirit of confession and vulnerability. Hi. I'm Ben, and I'm a recovering addict of productivity, hurry, and busyness. I'm also a second-generation Chinese Malay. I grew up in the east of Melbourne. I've been a follower of Jesus for 17 years. I now live on Gabi Gabi country on the Sunshine Coast with my wife, Chelsea, and our two daughters, Hallie and Maya. Hopefully this works and you can see them. Oh, that's a song. That's my family. Hallie and Maya, beautiful girls. Um, I want to acknowledge the Yagambe and Jagara people as the traditional custodians on the land on which we are today. We have so much to learn from our First Nations brothers and sisters about pace and space and rest. So I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging and to any Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people in the room. So my world, as Tina's alluded to, is I work with Christian leaders to be effective and sustainable and joyful in their callings, starting with leading themselves well. Lord knows we are the hardest people we'll ever have to lead, right? I'm the master at talking myself in and out of things. So my world is I work with them one-on-one, I lead retreats for leaders, I teach discipleship coaching, and I direct a leadership program for culturally, linguistically diverse people around Australia, that's some of the crews that I spend time with. Amazing people doing wonderful things for God in communities. You'll never meet them, you'll never hear of them, but these are giants, and it's an honor to get to spend time with them. I wanna thank you all, thank you for allowing me to be here today, for choosing to give me some of your precious attention and time. I know I'm a stranger to you, I don't take that for granted, so thank you. I wanna praise God, God is so kind. You know, he's got me, an A-plus, world-class, top-of-the-line struggler here talking about rest. And when I think about where I've been, and when I think about who I've been, man, I think about God's grace and his kindness to me. There's no words. I don't have any words for that, but thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Tinas. You know, I love this brother. 
He's probably sitting here being like, what have I done? Just invited this guy in, and in five minutes, he's talked about his undies, and he's talked, started, started crying in front of the church. But I know Tinas has got a real love for all of you, and a real love for Jesus. This is a good man on a good journey, and I can see God doing good things in you, mate, as you trust in him. So thank you for inviting me to spend some time with you people. So I'm here to talk about rest. And I am utterly convinced that rest is the most important activity that we will ever do. That's a big call. Other than give your life to Jesus, rest. Rest births creativity and vision. Rest makes us effective kingdom agents. Rest is an act of defiance that kills the idols of productivity and efficiency and achievement. Rest brings us home brings us home to living from a place of being loved and worthy and enough where we're not what we do, where we're not what we achieve or have or what people say about us, but what Jesus says about us. It's true. Rest is the most important activity we're ever going to do. And yet, something I also know is that most of us are desperately short on rest. We simultaneously crave it and we avoid it, right? We think we understand it, but like we all know, understanding something doesn't mean that we live it. See, much of my life, I've lived out of this paradigm of performance that I need to do well in order to be loved. Is that familiar to anyone here? Right? You know, I thought my identity came out of my activity. I am what I do. And then after coming to Jesus, after discovering that I have calling and purpose beyond productivity, that I am not what I do, not what I fail to do, or not what was done to me, but I'm what Jesus says about me. Well, then I began to proclaim Jesus. I live for him, and I began to proclaim that freedom. And yet, I still lived from a place of anxious, controlling, hyperactivity, and hurry. Neftali Mata says, I thought that grace got you in the door, And then after that, you had to prove yourself. I lived that. I know that story. And as I shared with you, after only a few years into my time as a pastor, I experienced burnout. And at first, I blamed everyone and everything around me. Right? I just blamed the the endless demands and the tasks. You know, people are hard. Trying to love people that I don't even really like. You know, and... The frequent and unhelpful and unkind feedback that people would give you. Man, it's not my fault. You know, life is hard and people are hard and there's so much to do and there's never enough time to do it and people keep asking for things and I should have more support and don't people see how much I'm giving and pouring out and nobody's pouring into me? The truth is, I was blaming external circumstances because I was afraid to face the reality of my private world. While I was leading other people, I was barely leading myself. And the most neglected part of that was rest. And the more that I avoided rest, the more that I was disconnecting myself from God. And here's the irony. The irony was, I thought I was doing it all for God. I was definitely doing it all in God's name. I was talking about him. But the reality was, I was avoiding God. Now, I suspect that I'm not alone in this experience. In fact, like 
and I said, I've worked with hundreds of people around the world in different ages, stages, circumstances, and communities. And the through line is, most of us are in a constant state of hurry and busyness that results in stress and overwhelm and exhaustion and anxiety and cynicism and apathy and physical ill health and so on. And many of us who are in this place are doing things for God. Does this resonate with anyone? Here's a list of things of how you might know you're in a place of unrest. Tianus and I looked at this together. Let me tell you about it. More often than not, more often than you'd like to admit, you are irritable, easily frustrated, short with your loved ones. I was there this week. Maybe you find it hard to slow down, and if you do, you can't actually relax. You don't know when or how to stop. You're caught in a loop of endless productivity, errands, house cleaning, emails, chronic multitasking. It's hard to turn off your mind. Maybe quiet time spent frustrated or staring at the clock. Maybe there is no quiet time. You know, maybe silence and solitude is the last thing that you want to do. Maybe you move so quickly from thing to thing to thing that you barely have any consciousness of what's happening in or around you or the idea of white space in your calendar. That's a bit of a joke. Maybe you feel like you just don't have anything left to give, like you give and you give and you give and you've given so much that you just feel a bit numb. Like, I've got nothing left to feel or offer. Or maybe I have this growing sense of resentment in me. Maybe you feel like there's a whole bunch of things waiting to be felt under the surface, but the thought of feeling those things is overwhelming, so you just press on. Been there too. Maybe you feel disconnected from your calling or your true self. Like there's so many endless demands. There's so many fires to put out. Everything feels urgent. And you just got to keep going, right? And it feels like if you, don't, if you stop, if you don't stop putting out all the fires, then the whole cart is just going to spontaneously combust. Maybe you don't feel like there's time for basic things like good sleep, regular exercise, healthy eating. Maybe your most significant relationships are being cheated, like they rarely get the best of you. Maybe you find yourself increasingly giving in to escapist behaviours, eating, mindless media consumption, substance abuse, shopping, pornography, whatever it is, we're trying to get away from the thing that's happening in us. Maybe you notice yourself going through the motions of the Christian life, like you're proclaiming championing things that you're not actually experiencing. You're manufacturing emotions that you don't really feel. You're engaging in kingdom action and part of you doesn't really care. Maybe you're deeply invested in church, community, mission, but somehow you feel less connected with God, yourself, and others. Now, you don't have to put your hands up, but am I resonating with anyone here? Right? Am I reading from your journal? Because you're hearing from my journal. And you're hearing from the journals of many, many other people. And most of the people I work with, they're Christian leaders. The people who are here doing this thing, this is what they're writing in their journals. You know, the statistics statistics say that one in three Christian leaders burn out. That was pre-pandemic. Life research into into the lives of Christians and their formation development says one in five finish well. That's not good enough. That's the reality for us, right? 
So you're not alone. If you're here, you're not alone, and there's no shame or condemnation. Unrest is a common state of being for so many of us. Michael Zigarelli, a professor at Charleston University State uh, School of Business, he conducted a survey of 20,000 Christians around the world. He tried to find out what's keeping people from God. And so he came up with this. I don't know if you can read it. I'll, I'll read it to you. What he found is the most commonly identified distraction from God was busyness and constant overload. And the report described this vicious cycle that goes like this. One, Christians assimilate a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, which leads to two, God becomes more marginalized in Christians' lives, which leads to three, a deteriorating relationship with God, which leads to four, Christians become even more vulnerable to adopting secular assumptions about how to live, which leads to five, more conformity to that culture of hurry, busyness, and overload. So the research tells us that the average Christ follower is caught up in this cycle of busyness and overload. If you're not, bless you, you are the exception. And what's happening is this is coming at a great cost to our health and to our relationships and to our vision and to our witness. As Rich Velotis, a pastor in Queens, New York, says... The speed at which we are living is doing violence to our very souls. There's a devotional writer, her name was Letty Cowman. And Letty Cowman wrote this story. He talks, she talks about this man who was exploring the jungles of Africa. And wherever he goes, he goes with the grace and the speed of a charging rhino. Right? He just wants to get there fast. But he also wants to be treated like a king, so he's just brought all of his favorite foods and his wine and his books and his furniture and he's packed them all in trunks and he can't carry them, so he's got to pay some strong men from the village to carry them for him. And so on that first day, he just drives them at this exhausting, God-forsaken pace through the jungle. Second morning, gets up, let's go. The men don't move. Come on, let's go, we've got, to, we've got this thing to do. I'm paying you, get up. He cajoles them, he pleads with them, he bribes them, he threatens them, they won't move. Why won't you get up? And eventually one young man says to him, it's not because they're especially tired that they won't go, it's because they've gone too far and too fast on that first day and now they had to wait for their souls to catch up with their bodies. And Ms. Cowman's conclusion was this. She said, this whirling, rushing life which so many of us live does for us what that first march did for those poor villagers. But here's the difference. They knew what they needed to restore life's balance and too often we do not. Now what's wild to me is Ms. Cowman wrote this story 100 years ago. She wrote this story, the whirling, rushing life she describes, a sense of disconnection from what would bring us balance. She wrote it before the internet. She wrote it before global air travel. She wrote it before many of the innovations that have both accelerated our societies and our souls. For as long as we have existed, humans have forgotten to wait for our souls to catch up with our bodies. N.T. Wright says it's only when we slow down that our, li our lives that we can catch up to God, but we are addicted to pace. In the 8th century, whoa, Addicted to pace, even your systems. <laughs> spoilers, lots of spoilers. Well, I don't know what's happening. We'll just leave it there. In the 8th century, 
the prophet Isaiah said to the people of Israel, the sovereign Lord has said, in repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. Get this. But you would have none of it. True then, true today. We've become strangers to rest. Is confronting at all? Thanks for bringing the good news, Ben. So what is rest? To understand rest, I want to take you back to the beginning. In Genesis 2, at the end of the creation story, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. And so on the seventh day, he rested from all of his work. He rested, right? God, you're familiar with this story. God works six days and then sets apart an entire day for rest. Catch this. This is God who doesn't sleep, right? This is God who takes no days off. God who doesn't need a holiday. God who doesn't grow faint nor weary. He rests. Why? So the word for rest in Genesis 2 is Shabbat. And Shabbat, it gives us that word Sabbath. And Shabbat means to stop, to be complete. It can also be translated to, to celebrate. To stop, to be complete, and to celebrate. Man, I like that. The purpose of rest, to stop, to be complete, and to celebrate. God invites us to rest, to stop from our work, to remember that we are complete in him already, finished, and to delight in the work of his hands. A day and a time for rest. Do you know that this is the very first thing that God calls holy in, in the whole Bible? What's holy? The day of rest. Humankind's first day on earth was a day of rest. Adam's first activity was to enjoy time with God in the world that God had created. Like, Adam, you're here. You're a child of God. Take some time just to celebrate that. How good. You know? You have a good God who is with you, and out of nothing, he can make everything. Take some time to stop and celebrate that. Think about the implications if there's a God who can make everything out of darkness, out of nothing. Beginning from rest means the chance that we have to start with celebration as we remember our place in the universe. Like there's a God, and you're not him, and neither am I. That's good news. You know, God is the one who can be all things to all people. God is the one who can be everywhere all at once. Right? God is the one who never sleeps, not me. And in him and with him, you are complete. Our culture, like you know, we're, we're in this, our culture wants limitlessness. That's what we call freedom. No limits, no boundaries, no barriers do what I want, when I want, how I want, as long as I'm not hurting anyone. No limits. But we were made to thrive within limits, right? Light and dark, night and day, sea and sky. God was creating limits for us to thrive in, and rest is this invitation to us to celebrate our God-given limits in our energy and our strength and our finances and our relationships in our community, in our geography, in our season of life. It's where we can embrace them and say, I'm in the midst, and yet God is good, and God, I trust you that you are giving me everything I need to thrive within my limits. 
here and now. And that's good news. That's good news to me because I'm a dad of little kids, right? They were sick this week. I have three jobs. I've got some limits. But the promise is that if I'll seek him in my limits, I can thrive. And he can make rivers of living water flow through me. And he can for you too. So day one, Adam's not put to work. He's told to rest. And the reason that Adam's not put to work straight away is because that's not our first calling. We are more than what we produce. And the degree to which we rest in God actually impacts what we produce. So in 2018, Chelsea and I went on a learning trip around the world. And we stayed with people all over the world and we were trying to ask, how are people staying sustainable and joyful and in love with Jesus as they serve in difficult missional settings? Because we just, like I told you, the burnout rates. I experienced burnout. Almost every Christian leader who's led me has experienced burnout. We're like, what's happening? We need to see how are people who are doing it and staying alive in it? What's, well, how do they do that? And everywhere we went, the people we stayed with had been there, planted in those communities at least 20 years. And they were well, and they were joyful, and they were in love with Jesus. And we learned so many things. But if I had to summarize our number one learning from that trip, it would be this. Be relentless about your pursuit of rest. Be relentless. All the people who we met were able to sustain long, faithful, and joy-filled lives amidst difficult circumstances because they were fierce about making time for rest and renewal every day, every week, every month, every year, every few years as individuals, as families, and as communities. When they look at a calendar, they go, where are our periods of rest? Now we'll plan everything else in around that. Rest isn't something you squeeze in. Rest is the birthplace of the creative work. Does that make sense? Right? So, these are people, like, I want to say, too, because I recognize we have different people in different stages in this room. And the people that Chelsea and I spent time with all over the world, different cultures, different ages, different stages, kids, no kids, relationships, single, grandkids, different hobbies, ministry, tent making, full-time work, all different settings, relentless about rest. All of them got what Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians. Now, this is Paul, A-type of all A-types, right? This is Paul, and he says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Take all of your drive, take all your vision, all your strategy, all your strength, all your planning, and put it into rest and intimacy. This is what these people were telling us. Rest is a weapon. It's a weapon God gave you so you can be a weapon for the kingdom. When I asked one of our friends that we met, how do you and your husband make sense of God's call? You know, there's so much to do. How do you keep going when, this, when you're witnessing and you're experiencing so much poverty and suffering and oppression? She said, Ben, I have had to learn that the need is not your calling. It's not. She said, Ben, when I look at Jesus, you know, I see that he's interruptible, he's compassionate, he's willing to stop and to help and to heal, but his eyes are always on the Father. 
He's always on the mission entrusted to him. You know, it says Jesus set his eyes towards Jerusalem. And so Jesus retreated so often to go back and to be with his father and to receive the calling again, to remember his identity, to give back all of the need to the God who can hold it and then continue walking faithfully towards the cross. That's what Jesus taught her. Need's not your calling. Your calling is to be with and be faithful to the Father. And we look at John 15. It says, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We're not called to productivity first. We're called to remain, to abide, to rest. Rest moves us away from the lie that we must make something of ourselves. And it embraces our first calling and our identity that we are already something in God. We are God's children. We are made for intimacy and relationship. Our first calling is to be the beloved. That's who you are. And our abiding then releases us into our secondary calling to love others as we love ourselves. Who we are releases us to do the thing. Who we are impacts what we do. Identity before activity. The need's not your calling. Remain in Jesus as he remains in you and you will bear much fruit and apart from him you can do nothing. Now that is something I still grapple with because I have an activist spirit. I want to do stuff. You know, I want to act. I want to get things done. I want to make things happen. I can see, as I'm sure you can too, I can see a lot of need, right? There's a lot of people hurting. And I want to respond. And I know that's a good thing. But so often I try to do it in my own strength. And when I try to do it in my own strength, it turns out a bit like this. I've been talking a long time. Let's take a little pause. Everyone just take a deep breath in with me. Now breathe out. Now breathe out. Now breathe out. Stop doing it. No fainting in church. Unless it's the spirit. But that's what I do. There's nothing left in the tank. Right? I got one season of renewal. Just keep going now. I've done it. I've been with God. You can't give what you don't have. And Jesus said, let anyone who is thirsty... Come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Whoever comes to him believing that this is where the life comes from, they will overflow rivers of living water. You know what this tells me? Streams, they flow from the source. We're not the source. We're not the creators of life. We are the vessels for it. When you rest, you abide in God and you let that life flow through you. And so something I notice about Jesus is that the more Jesus' influence grows, the more his platform grows, the more that people come for him, the more intensity he experiences, the more Jesus starts to withdraw and be with his Father. Have you noticed that? Right? They want him. Going out in the boat. Coming for him. Where is he? He's on the mountain. He keeps going back to be with his father. Now, I contrast that to what I do and what a lot of us do is we see increased influence, you know, 
I'm having more kids, or I'm getting a promotion, or I've got this new role at the church, or I'm being entrusted with these things, or we take increased intensity. There's just a lot going on right now. There's so much happening, and I'm really people are sick, and people are hurting, and they need me, and increased influence, increased intensity, and we try to match it with increased intensity. But Jesus teaches us increased influence or increased intensity calls for increased intimacy. You with me? Yeah? I was thinking about this one morning with, with my daughters. I was in the park and I'm pushing my one-year-old Maya on the swings and she's in the little kid's bucket swing thing and she loves it and she's flying out and then she's flying back and she's looking, every time she flies back she looks at me like this and just smiles at me all toothy and gummy and just snot flying out of her nose. And, but she just does it every time, just flies out and then swings back and stares at me, right? And I push her out higher and then she falls back, and the further out she goes, the deeper she comes back into my arms. Are you getting the picture? Right? We are called and sent people. Called to intimacy and abiding and rest. Sent out into the world to give off the overflow, only to come back and get some more again. Is that clear? Yeah? There's a quote that has struck and just challenged my heart these past few years, from Robert Mulholland Jr. I think I said this to you, Tiernis, when we caught up. He says, often we will expend amazing amounts of resources and energy to be for God in the world, but we were called to be in God for the world, not for God in the world, in God for the world. Why? Because you give what you've received. And the very best gift you will give to the world is your transforming self in Christ. Colossians 1.27, right? God has chosen to make known to the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, that it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. The best thing you have to offer the world is what you allow Christ to do in you today. Not what he did in you yesterday, or last week, or last month, or that camp one time ago, or that last season of renewal, today, and then tomorrow, and then tomorrow after that. You're called to be in God for the world. This is why rest is the most important activity you will ever do. You remain in the Father and you bear much fruit. Without him, you can do nothing. But I believe God wants to do something here. Right? I believe he wants to do something in you. I believe he wants to do something beautiful through you, Grace House. Do you believe that? Amen. Yeah? Amen. Thank you. And do we believe... I believe he wants you to be a witness of hope and joy and welcome home to the people of Logan. Do you believe that? Right? I believe he wants you to be like the vision of God's people in Zechariah 8, where people from all languages, all nations, all tongues, you've got plenty of diversity in Logan. Amen, sister. And so, he wants you to take all those people, all those nations, and he wants them to be like Zechariah 8, where those people grab hold of you and they say, let me go with you. Show me where you're going. We've heard that God is with you. We want to come. That's the vision for you. Do you want it? Because if you want to be that, if you want to live that, here's the invitation. Begin with a posture of rest. Take on the easy and light yoke of Jesus. Now, you know this, the world is changing. We have increasing uncertainty, unprecedented anxiety, Popular opinion says the church is dying. The world's more secular. 
what I see and what I'm sure you see too is the deep hunger in our spirits for a good news story that there is a king and a savior who frees us from the death and tyranny of slavery and sin, that's as real as ever, true? The hunger's still there and we're trying to find it in all kinds of things not called Jesus. And in times of wilderness and exile, here's what God's people are meant to do. We're called to live with this confidence where we go, nothing makes sense. We don't know where we're going and it seems like we're going to lose. And God's people are meant to go, oh yeah, we've been here. I know this place. I know what it's like here. Oh, you don't know where you're going? Me too. Yep. Don't know what's going to happen. Don't know when we get there. Don't know even how we get there. Got no sense of the plan. Me too. And God's people, what do they do when they get in exile? They learn to hear his voice and seek his presence. What, I love the way you describe what's Grace House's history. We don't know where we're going. We don't know what we're doing. God, what do you want to do? And we'll just go when you tell us to go, and we stop when you tell us to stop. We lie down when you tell us to lie down. We eat when you tell us to eat. You know that, that exile story of the, um, in Exodus where they, that they could do that journey in two weeks? It took them 40 years. Why? God's not in a hurry to get us to the promised land. He's so much more interested in us learning how to be his people. He wants to know, will you seek my presence more than you seek the plan or the promise? Is it enough just to have the presence? And how good is it just before the promised land? He says to them, it's almost time, you know, I'm going to lead you in, I'm going to clear the land, I'm going to clear the people. And Moses says to him, if your presence won't go with us, we will not go. That's what we want. People of the presence. We're called to live lives that call other people home to Jesus because we've made ourselves at home with Jesus. And this generation doesn't hear the gospel so often because they don't see the gospel in us. You know, we've been sucked into this lie of hurry and productivity and endless activity. But don't you know you were called to be the light of the world? Do you know what that's, that's what Jesus says about you? You are the light of the world. And maybe you don't feel too light right now. That's what he says. You're the light of the world. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This generation are longing to see people whose lives proclaim a different story. Not just people who speak about Jesus, but people who have come alive in Jesus, who are resurrected, whose, good, whose lives proclaim the good news before they speak a word because people need that hope. We're to live lives that proclaim my strength, not in what I do, my strength is in what Jesus has already done, right? Now, just this week, two people in my life were diagnosed with cancer. Just this week, a former colleague of mine said goodbye to her mother, having already seen her husband go home to Jesus this year. It's been a hard few years, hey, for all of us, certainly for my family. Grief and suffering has marked much of the last five years for us. We've had chronic illness. We've lost family. We lost a son. We've lived out of bags. We've had no money. We've lost and had to rebuild community. We felt this call from God to start this business and ministry in a transition season with no stable income, and all that was before COVID. We've had no clarity or control, none. 
but I have found joy and healing and trust. Trust that has been uncomfortable and painful and downright heart-wrenching at times. But I would not be here without God. And I have seen that he is God on the mountain and he is God in the valley and he's good. And he taught me that in rest. It's his goodness that's carried me through. It's his goodness that he wants to give to you. I see you. I don't know what's happening in your life, but I bet there's some things going on. And he wants to give you his goodness as a fire-forged hope, a diamond created under pressure to help you live so that you can be the light of the world and rejoice in a hurting world and proclaim that the grave is empty. Death, where is your sting? The kingdom is near. Rest moves you into Christ-like transformation. The greatest gift you will give to the world is your transforming self. In God, for the world, Christ in you. Now, before we talk about that, I've been talking for a really long time and I need a drink. So, let's pause. Turn to the person next to you. What's the thought that's stirring in you? Off you go. All right, just wrap up those thoughts. I'm going to give you more time to talk to each other in a minute. <clears throat> oh, that's cool for me just to just ask you to do that. I'm from a, um, a community where that's how we do faith. We kind of like preach by committee and we, we get into the word together and, and we talk about it like um, I got a, a mentor who's a First Nations um, Gamilaroi man and he talks about hunting in the word. And he's like, everyone goes out to hunt, everyone brings it back, and we feast as a community. And so um, there's wisdom and riches, and God is at work in the person next to you. So it's good to spend time together and listening to one another. So as we come into land, I want to give you three practical ways God's taught me how to rest. 
He's taught me how to rest in exile in this season of wilderness and grief because I acknowledge that resting and staying close to Jesus, that's hard. Jobs and study and relationships and finances and family and hobbies and mental health and loneliness and sickness and grief and loss and trauma and suffering. It's hard to rest in amidst all of that. I get it. Here's three things God's taught me. First one, choose a new story. What do I mean by that? We are meaning-making machines. So in psychology, neurology tells us where there's something that's stimulating an event, we don't know what's happening with it, what we'll do is we'll just decide, here's the story, here's what's happening. Right? We make a conclusion, and then we live from it. And often, unconscious scripts are running under the surface, and they are the things that keep us busy. They're the things that tell us to keep going even when we know it's time to lie down. So what I want to invite you to do is ask or reflect on what's the story you're telling yourself when you're out of rest? What is it? What's that unconscious story? Here's, here's what's common for the leaders I work with. I'm not worthy if I'm not busy. Someone has to be responsible and it should be me. Grace is for everyone, but I have to earn it. If I don't keep holding this up, then other people will suffer. Nobody else is going to do it. I haven't done enough. These stories hold us captive, and they drive us like Pharaoh. An author, Adele Calhoun, says, if you aren't resting, that's a sign that you're a slave to something. So take these thoughts captive. Hold them up to the truth. What is the redemptive story? You know, when Jesus is tested, how does he respond? To false stories, Jesus responds with Scripture, right? He allows what God has said to surpass what his current circumstances tell him. And when the enemy comes for him and says, just do this, just be more, just be better, Jesus sends him away with the Word of God. During sabbatical, I finished up at the church I was at, and I was a pastor there for eight years, and I finished up in a season where my ministry was just growing. And I remember even team members said to me, it's, I remember them saying, to me, like, what are you doing? You've got so much potential. It's going so well. Oh, I must be burnt out again. You know? And it hurt, but God was like, don't worry about that. You come be with me. You know what the real story is. And the Lord kept me in Psalm 23. He said, Ben, I want you to tune out the noise and internalize this. Feast on this. Rest in this. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me on straight paths for his namesake. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And your rod and staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. And my cup overflows. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. It overflows. Surely your goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Live in that, Ben. That's the story. Rest is where you return to love and you inherit this new story. It brings you home. 
where you are loved, you're worthy, you're enough, you're redeemed, you're called, you're on mission with God, you're never abandoned nor forsaken, you're a new creation, you're a co-heir with Christ and more than a conqueror as Jesus was in this world, you're a new creation and so on and so on and so on. The rest brings you home. This is who you are, right? So rest allows us to be still in his strength and know that he loves us. And if we knew deeply that our strong God is with us and he loves us, what difference would it make? It would change the world. So I want to ask you these three questions. Who does God want to be for you? So what I want you to think about is, who's God to you? What's God like? What is a quality or a characteristic of of God that's really important to you? Maybe it's that he's good or a saviour, that God is a provider, that he's love, that he's with you. Just think about what's that word for you? And I want to ask you, what does it mean about you? If you're made in God's image, then something you say about God means something about who you are. So if God is that thing, what does that mean about who you are? If he's good, if he's a savior, if he's a provider, if he's love, then maybe it means that you are a recipient of his goodness, or you're saved, or you're provided for, or that you're loved, or that you're secure. I am confident, I'm enough, I'm free. And whatever that is, you take hold of that. Take hold of what the Spirit is bringing up about who God is and who you are. And as you hold that treasure, think about the week ahead. Think about what activities are coming up, what events What are you excited for? What are you dreading? What people are you going to interact with? And look at it through the filter of that treasure you've just found. How does that version of you live the week ahead? How does the version of you who knows that they are enough, loved, free, provided for, that God is with them, what thoughts do they choose or ignore? What kind of actions do they take or let go? What kind of things do they say no to? And what kind of rest do they fight for? Once again, just turn to the person next to you, have a share. What's God showing you?
I just wrap up those sentences. I know the time is short. I know that um, there's plenty of those conversations still to go and I encourage you to keep having them. Um, I'd actually like to move us forward. We, there's another one I want to show you. Come and talk to me afterwards or we have some time and I'll talk about it then. But the other one I want to tell you about is to practice life, death to receive life. So John the Baptist put it well. He said, he must increase, but I must decrease. Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. We too are called to pick up a cross and follow our Christ in union with his death into his resurrected life. And the gospel tells us that on the other side of death is what? Life. Resurrection. So what do I mean by practicing death then? To receive life. Well, since my season of burnout, I've been learning to choose some practices of little death. Small moments, habits, actions that posture me towards Jesus and away from myself. Daily times of sitting in silence and stillness, waiting and listening to God. Reading through scripture. I take regular prayer retreats, half days or full days to come away and be with God. I have one tomorrow. It's coming at a good time. You know, Dallas Willard said, if you do not come away for a while, you will come apart after a while. Man, I feel that. You know, practicing Sabbath, operative word, practice. I'm still figuring out what does Sabbath even look like with little children, right? What does sitting still look like with a child just smacking you over the head with a book? I practice digital limits, right? This is a wonderful thing and a slavery device. My phone has limits on how long I can access almost all of it and on what days, and on a Sunday, it's useless. I can just see the time because Chelsea has the password. Right? I don't know how to get onto it. It's done. All of these votes, all of these are votes towards being a person who spends time with Jesus, listening to Jesus, so he can be made more like Jesus and walk and serve with Jesus. Each of these things are acts that cost me something, right? They cost time and attention and energy and activity and money. And so I don't want to stand here and I'm not going to just, I don't want to prescribe to you what you should do. What I want to encourage you is just to ask, Jesus, how do you want to meet me? How can I slow down to be with you? And then how can you be intentional about that invitation? What are you going to do about that invitation? What can you choose this week in order to allow Christ to increase in your life? You just start where you are. You don't have to go take a full day retreat. You don't have to become a monk. Start anywhere. And one of my favorite scriptures, Zechariah 4.10, when the people of Israel are called to rebuild the temple after exile, it's rubble. They remember what it used to be. Everyone's against them. They're kicking rocks. How disheartening must that have been? What is the point of all this? We're just shifting rubble around. And it says, do not despise the small beginnings. For the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. You call it kicking rocks. He calls it building his temple. That's what you're doing. I'm going to turn my phone off. You build it, you're building the temple. I'm going to take some time off. You're building the temple. So Jesus, how do you want to meet me? And how will you be intentional about that? And my encouragement to you, I'm going to share with you what my spiritual director shared with me. 
When you do these practices, they may feel hard, frustrating, and fruitless. I'm sure you've tried them. I'm sure you've felt that. That's good. Because what hurts in it is often that we're not producing anything. You can't see what's happening. You don't get anything out of it. It's an exercise in trust. You're not producing. It's not about what you achieve. You can't do silence or prayer good enough. Because that's not the point. You're actually being stripped of the impulse to measure your worth by what you produce. Does that make sense? We do these things to come home to the reality where you're already loved and you're already enough in Christ and all he wants is just to be with you. Where it's enough just to be with him. And my spiritual director says to me, Ben, the best thing you can do is to show up. The worst thing you can do is not show up. And the next thing to do is show up. Right? He said, you are cultivating a space, a garden in which to meet with the Lord. And when he wants to move or speak, he finds you waiting. Brutal death to receive life on the other side is resurrection. When I went on sabbatical, I spent a lot of time asking God to grow me in his love. I wanted to go deeper in him. And each morning, I would read the Bible and I'd pray and I'd journal and I'd go sit out on the deck and I'd face the wind, the grass and I'd just pray, yes. As I breathed in, yes, God, I'm here. Yes, God, I'm listening. Yes, God, your will be done. Stuff like that. And I did this on repeat for 10 months. And I didn't feel anything necessarily changing. I didn't receive any great revelation. I didn't notice anything was happening. If you ask Chelsea, she would say I was different. But I didn't notice. But one day, as I started to do that, God spoke. He said to me, Ben, I love you. Stop talking. Today, I am going to tell you what to say yes to. And I want you to breathe that in and out. Let this be the place that you live from, Ben. He said, I created you. I made you in my image. And you are my child. Say yes. He said, I love you, and you cannot change that. I love you. Say yes. He said, I remember making you. I remember you perfect. I remember you before any issues of sin or lies about who you are, and I still see what I made, and I still love what I made. Say yes. I created you to live freely in the life I offer you. Say yes. I've already won over sin. You're not your past, you're not your failures, you're not your fears, your sins, your mistakes, your trauma. Ben, I nailed those things to the cross and you can't have them back. Say yes. Your weaknesses are not stronger than me. I set you free from them. They're dead and they no longer define you. Say yes. And then three times, Ben, you are a new creation. Say yes. You are a new creation. Say yes. You are a new creation. Say yes. And obviously, I cried like a baby. And as I reflect back on that time, I know God could have said that to me at any time, wants to say that to me all the time. And I'm also confronted that it took me 10 months of intentionally slowing down for me to really hear and receive what God wanted to say to me each and every day of my life. It's his word to give, but it's our job to prepare the soil. What can you do to slow down to wait and receive. So there's been a lot of words. 
I've no more left to say. Let's be still and know God. And I ask, invite you to ask him this question. And then if you would like prayer, I think Tina said there's a prayer team who can pray for you. I can pray for you. Come sit next to me. Um, but yeah, I think the worship team will come up in a moment. But we'll sit still and ask him this question. And my prayer for you is this. Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. Lie down. So that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. God, we bring to you our fears and our dreams and our worries and our anxieties and our hopes and our plans. And we lay them before you. Help us to trust you. Help us to seek your presence more than your promise, more than the plans. To trust you that you are good and faithful. God, make us resurrection people. Make our lives preach the good news in a way that calls others home. You've called us to be the light of the world. God, light us up. And then you say, be still and know that I'm God. So God, we now are still. And we wait on you, Holy Spirit, speak. God bless you all.